You're listening to Interviews, the podcast that cracks the entrepreneurship code. I'm your host, Laurent Autain. I'm an entrepreneur, coach to entrepreneurs, and startup mentor with more than 20 years' experience running companies and advising entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur is the most difficult job there is. There are no practical guidelines. So join me every week and learn how you can better navigate your entrepreneurship journey and become an exceptional entrepreneur. Hi, this is Interviews 108. I have not one but two guests today who not only are business partners, but are also partners in life. <laughs> Stephen and Faith Rothberg are the, co- the owners of College Recruiter, a job search site that was created because every student and recent grad deserves a great career. The site is used by students and recent grads of all one, two, and four-year colleges and universities to find internships, seasonal jobs, part-time work, and entry-level career opportunities. Faith serves as the CEO, while Stephen, who initially funded the company in 1991, which is like 31 years ago, this is just crazy (laughs) when you think about it, is the chief visionary officer. Stephen also co-hosts a podcast called Job Bot Week, which connects candidates with employers. So, of course, I couldn't skip the occasion to talk to a married couple of entrepreneurs. Hello, Faith and Stephen. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, you're very welcome. So, first question. Tell us about the story of uh, your company 31 years ago. Stephen, how did that happen? So, well, if as if that isn't long ago enough, um, I started when I was in my um, last year in university. I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada. I went to the University of Manitoba. Um, And so in uh, 1987, 88 was my last year uh, because I'm ancient. uh, And (laughs) a friend of mine was running a, a tiny little marketing company where he was doing things like calendars and coupons, selling advertising mm-hmm. to local businesses, and then giving those calendars, coupons, et cetera, away to students at the uh, at our undergraduate um, school at the University of Manitoba. Um, I was in a small business marketing class with him, and we wrote a business plan. I really liked it and thought it was just like this you know, great little um, business. And then I went on vacation to Phoenix, Arizona, Um, which is where Arizona State University, one of the largest schools in the world, is located. And they gave out a campus map to freshmen and visitors to the campus like me. And lo and behold, on that map, around the edges were advertising spots. Mm -hmm. I brought that back to my friend, said, hey, you should do it. And he thought it was the worst idea in the world. So I said, (laughs) can I do it? You know, Because we would be basically competing for some of the same ad dollars. He thought because it was the worst idea in the world, go, go for it. Um, you want to fail? Fail. It's not going to hurt me. So I did it. Um, and it was great. It was fun. And then I kind of walked away from the business. Um, it was taken over by a couple of friends of mine. Uh, but I walked away because I was going to grad school here in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, went, to, went to law school, graduated, was practicing in my first year. And the lure of being a small business owner just kept kind of bringing me back. And so I essentially restarted the same kind of business, but here in Minneapolis. So mm. from 90, um, 92 uh, is when it sort of really started uh, with selling to customers. I was publishing maps of different university campuses, that kind of thing. And then after a couple of years, um, Faith and I had now met, we were married, and we were talking about the future of the business. And we wanted to add more publications because the the maps were really great, but basically all the revenues, all the profits came from about eight weeks worth of work. So what do you do for the rest of the year? As I realize now, what I should have realized, what I should have done is nothing the rest of the year. (laughs) Um, That wouldn't, right? To have 44 weeks of vacation a year or whatever, that would have been okay. uh, And, um, but what we ended up doing is creating an an employment magazine that we just, that um, local employers would advertise their job openings in and the school through its career service office would distribute the magazines to its students. Um, Within a couple of years, uh, we had 250 schools around the country distributing different regionalized versions of it. They were all more or less similar, but had different ads, different content in them. 
Uh, and then in 1996, this thing called the internet came mm. along. And so over the next few years, we shut down the maps, which were very profitable, but weren't going to grow. We shut down the magazines, same thing. They were very profitable, but that's not where the future of the business was. And by 2000, um, the entire business was a job search site um, at um, collegerecruiter.com. Um, and then um, another big turning point in the company's history and you know why she's my business partner in addition mm -hmm. to being my, my wife, my life partner, is that about, uh, I guess it's 14 years ago now, uh, we, it, we finally realized that Faith was much better suited to being the chief um, executive officer, to being the CEO, to having our leaders and um, sometimes other employees report to her. Um, I'm not good at managing people uh, and I really hate it. So when you talk about like bottlenecks in your business and getting them out of the way, that's what we did with me. <laughs> <laughs> good. So what, what about you, Faith? What, what, why did you join? So uh, I guess the first reason is because I was married to Stephen. Mm. Um, but quite frankly, for many years, um, when I first met Stephen, I worked outside the business. My background is IT um, technology. So I had been a computer programmer and ultimately worked for KPMG as a IT manufacturing consultant. So I had a lot of background that way. And with a website that made perfect sense for us. Uh, I also have an MBA and um, in corporate strategy. And I, I just, you know, all around had a lot of business knowledge from education and experience. So as we, uh, there was a time when I stepped back from work and stayed home with the kids. We have three kids. They were six, four, and two as a way to describe how busy it was when they were little. Um, or I should have said four, two, and new. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it got kind of crazy for a while. And so I ended up uh, quitting work and uh, worked very hard in the home for a while. And then we had both discussed as our kids got older, that most likely uh, when I went back to work, that it would be in the business because we clearly had complementary skill sets mm -hmm. um, that were right for our business. So um, that's how that and that's how it happened. And it, it was a bit of a trans transition. I definitely yeah. have to say that. But it, it's good. It's been great. Nice. So, what is it to to run a company as as a better wife team? Because in my experience, mm -hmm. uh, mm. I say it's either it works very well or it explodes. Yeah. <laughs> there is yeah. no there is no in between. But you guys have been doing that for what like twenty years or so. Uh, you know, how yeah. do you make it? How do you make it work? So yeah. she's very patient. <laughs> with, with you or in general? <laughs> uh, in in oh. general, in general, and specifically with with me. Um, so, I we've we've taken a couple of those personality tests over the years, yeah. and one of the things that consistently comes back is that I have the the areas where that I'm strong in, I'm really strong. And the areas that I'm weak in, I'm really weak. And faith, on the other hand, it's is almost perfectly balanced across the board in in all the areas. So one of the things that works really, really well in in our company is that she has this very unusual ability to really understand and be competent in just about every area. So she can talk to the finance people and understand finance. She can talk to the IT people and understand the IT. She's not going to be the one who's going to be, you know, doing our annual financial statements or who's going to be like writing code. But when she's talking to those people, she totally gets it. Same thing with the marketing, same thing with the sales. Um, but I think most importantly, she's really good at managing people. She's very empathetic and um bright and driven and so she's a very good listener but doesn't just sort of roll over if somebody says hey i want this she's not just like this yes person she'll push back um as necessary including with me 
Um, whereas with me, I just have very little tolerance for a lot of that stuff. So yeah, I mean, like if you were to join our company, you would much prefer to have faith as your boss. Than me. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> So Stephen, you just talked about faith, right? Let, let me turn to faith now. Uh, how is it to work with Stephen? Sure. So um, I thank you, Stephen, for for the compliments you gave me. This was a very kind way to describe me, so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I think that is one thing that um, makes it work between us is that we both have a lot of mutual respect for each other. Mm. Um, when Steven talks about where he's strong, he is, he's a rock star in certain areas. He's really strong and that's, what's made our company um, and continues to set us, you know, set the right vision and where we should be going. Um, and, you know, frankly, you can't have a company without that. So that is invaluable. What I think made it work so well is that one of the skill sets I have um, is that I'm really good at seeing people's strengths and seeing their weaknesses and being able to say, uh, when I was younger in my career, I would say things like, you know, we're going to leverage your strength and work on your weaknesses. Well, Mm -hmm. actually um, I've matured through more of that, I think. And my philosophy is you put someone in a seat that really leverages their strengths and minimizes their need to use their weaknesses. And so that's how I got Stephen into a position of chief visionary officer. One of the key parts uh, was to get him out of the day to day, because (laughs) although he says he doesn't like to manage and he's bad at it, it the bad it of it, it can't help it. The bad of it is a hundred percent right. And it comes in where he shouldn't be. So that's how that's, that's really, you know, been key. And I think it's been key for his happiness as well, to be honest. Mm. So. so wait, so Faith, you said that I got Stephen into the visionary role. Does that mean that it actually wasn't my idea? And that I just <laughs> thought it was my idea? <laughs> I'd say it was in a mutual idea. How's that? Uh, okay, it was it was her idea, and I went along with it. Yeah, okay, yeah. that kind yes, of mutual Stephen, idea. That's, that's a good I made you believe, <laughs> That's right. I made you believe it was your idea, which is what a great manager does, right? There so go. there you go. <laughs> but but you guys, do you do you talk about anything else than business? I mean, do you also have a a, yeah. a personal life? How can you? How yeah. Do you manage, how do you manage that? Yeah, you know. At times, it was really difficult, I would say, mm-hmm. in the beginning to because we had such a small amount of time, we were working so much in the business and um, raising little kids. And so we had a lot of focus on the business. And then maybe if we did need to talk to about anything, it would be uh, on the kid side. But I think also we always knew that we wanted to keep our relationship fresh. So we made a point, you know, when they were really young, we made a point of having date nights and going out and not talking about business. And to this day, we still do that. The other thing is that we both love some aspects about the business to talk Mm. about. Um, So it doesn't always feel like work or business. It's, it feels like something exciting for the two of us um, that we share. Um, And then Stephen, you can talk about how how you've worked us into traveling and working remotely from working remotely, but that's been a big part too of our personal and professional relationship and how we can separate them. Mm. Yeah, we, we definitely um, have never tried to have a bright line between our personal lives and our business lives. It's always been different shades of gray that, Mm. The business is always there and the personal is always there, but one, depending on the issue, might greatly outweigh the other, or it might be somewhat balanced. Like Faith mentioned, the um, traveling for work. So now that our kids are grown, they're 27, 25, and 23, and we've been empty nesters for you know coming up on five years, it's a lot easier for us to basically turn the key, jump in the car, and go drive someplace, rent an Airbnb for a month or whatever. And we've done that a handful of times. Um, We're actually just 
planning a trip now that I think is going to be five weeks. Um, mm-hmm. We have a couple of conferences in Europe. Um, one is the RecBuzz um, Amsterdam conference in mid-September. Another one is a Job Boards Connect conference in London in October. And so it's like, you know, rather than flying back and forth across the Atlantic and spending a few thousand dollars on airline tickets, we can take that few thousand dollars and get an Airbnb for the month. Sure. And so that's the kind of thing that because we work together and we're married, that becomes really easy working. We call it working remotely from working remotely. So that's a real upside to not separating your personal and professional lives. Um, But like Faith said, there are plenty of times every day where something is purely business or something is purely on the personal side. And we're pretty good at separating that out. I wouldn't say that we've always been successful at doing that. Um, But when we've crossed that line in one you know, the business starts to interfere with the personal life in a way that's just not healthy. One or usually both of us recognizes that. And then we'll just sort of hit the pause button or or claw back, mostly. Wouldn't mm. say always. Right. <laughs> right. So you said re- uh, working remotely from working remotely. That is because, yeah. if I'm correct, you've been managing the, the, the business remotely since 1997, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. How, so, how do you do that? In ni- back in 1997, managing a <laughs> managing a remote business. <laughs> yeah. So, so here here in the um, here in the U.S., there's a there's a chain of franchised stores that used to be called Mailboxes USA and mm. um, United Parcel Service UPS purchased purchased the franchise. I don't know, probably 15 years ago or something like that. Now they're called UPS stores. So you can go and get, you know, photocopying, printing, that kind of stuff done. And they also have mailboxes. And the address for your mailbox looks like a regular street address. So for about 15 or 20 years, we our, our quote unquote office was about four inches across, about four inches high <laughs> and about 18 inches deep. And... <laughs> Um, and it was basically, it was a mailbox at the yeah. UPS store. So from a, from a physical, um, you know, do you have an office kind of thing we didn't want to have mail or customers or whatever coming to our home. And so we used that, that UPS store for the mail, it gave us a more professional looking mm-hmm. address that's become kind of irrelevant in, mm. in today's age. It's really just not a problem, but back in 97, home-based businesses were just not taken seriously. And there were definitely customers that we had that if they knew that we were running a business out of our home, they would not have been our customers. They just would have felt like, you know, you can't be real or you can't be competent. And that's just really no longer the case with so many people working remotely. That trend was happening before COVID, but it really accelerated under COVID. So, but more to your point about, you know, how do you run the business, let's say on a day-to-day basis, and and that um, is that we've we've always tried to manage by outcomes. Mm. So we don't really care if you're one of our employees whether you start work at eight a.m. or eight fifteen or nine a.m. or nine fifteen. Your hours have to mostly overlap with everybody else's so that we can have team meetings and coordinate stuff in real time. But we don't care if you are banging away on the keyboard feverishly. We don't care if you're a salesperson and you made 30 calls or 80 calls or 120 calls today. It What did you produce? What mm-hmm. did you get done? And we've had to work very hard over the years in figuring out what those outcomes are that we're looking for, making them measurable and communicating those well to employees so that people know what's expected of them. And when they agree that that's what's expected of them, it solves so many problems because if they attain those goals, they know that we're going to be happy. And if we're not happy, that's on us. If our goals change or become unrealistic, that's our issue, not the employees. On the other hand, if they fail to meet those desired outcomes, why 
Did we fail to give them the right resources? Did they just get distracted? Um, did they quit work too early, too many days? Uh, so it's really about being very purposeful, very thoughtful in and, and being very clear with your communication with your employees about what's expected of them and making sure with them that that's reasonable, not just imposing it, but mm. making that a two-way dialogue. And that's something that Faith is just much better at. I would be more inclined to say, I think you should be able to do this. And I would be trying to be reasonable, but I wouldn't check in with you and say, do you, do you agree? Mm-hmm. Is there something standing in the way of you attaining that? And maybe you come back and you say, well, yeah, you've asked me to do these other 47 things. I'm happy <laughs> to do this 48th thing. And I'll be happy to jump on that right now. But are you okay with me not getting to those other 47 things until tomorrow, next week, next month? And that's something that I was never, ever, ever good at. Where Faith, it just kind of comes more naturally to her that she might not remember all the different things that all the employees are supposed to do but she remembers to ask and to mm. find out, does this create a problem? Is this something that is going to work for you? And mm. that is incredibly important when you're managing a remote workforce. Focusing on uh, outcomes is one of the of the, the keys uh, of success. Are there any other uh, very important milestones or very important you know, lessons that you have learned uh, that, uh, you know, brought you to where you are today? Yeah. So I would say, you know, especially when it comes to remote, it took me a while to figure out how to hire the right people for Mm -hmm. remote positions, but hiring the right people to start is very key to, uh, to building a team, whether it's in-house or, or, you know, whether you're in an office or you're all working remotely, but, the other, uh, the other piece in my leadership that I've learned, two things, we use a structure called the entrepreneur's operating system to run right. our business or in the entrepreneurial operating system. It's called EOS for short. And that gives us a really good framework for everything from our vision and what our goals are for the year three years out, five years out, what our marketing strategy is, all of that. It's like a business plan in in a single document, which is fabulous. And then we look at, uh, it shows us how to think about putting the right people in the right seats. Mm -hmm. So you can do that before you even hire someone. Um, And the the key to me is it, it also does drive results. That's what it's about. It's about growth. So it's about building a business. So it's really great for startups and for uh, small businesses that want to grow because it really builds what's what we call traction. Mm. And that's the name of the book where, where Gina Wickman describes the entrepreneurial operating system. And um, I learned about it from uh, a very good friend that was a serial entrepreneur and very successful at what he did. And he, made everybody read this book in every new startup he had and start with this process. Um, The thing to me that ties into that is the idea that you need to all be rowing in the same direction. And for me, that starts with being really authentic and really vulnerable and leading that way so that I encourage a safe environment where others feel like they can be vulnerable, mm-hmm. because that means then you've got real trust and you've also got uh, more brain power from everyone because they're willing to share their ideas, knowing they're not going to get slammed down, knowing they're not going to get fired, mm-hmm. you know, having that safety. And then the thing about accountability that I really like to do is make people understand that it sometimes a lot of employees think that's a scary word. Ooh, that means responsibility. Ooh, that means, you know, it's just, it's a scary word. And the reality is, and I tell them like, if you want, if you're want to exceed expectations, you know, if you're the kind of person where, whether you did that in school, you know, or, or at work, how can you ever exceed expectations if you don't know what's expected of you? So, 
that's what accountability is about, right? It's like, let's agree on what is expected of you so you can perform and do what's best for the company and best for yourself in growing who you are in your career too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when people are accountable, what you really get it, when they buy into it and they like it and they feel safe, then, then you do see those results and you see even bigger, better results. Cause now everybody's rowing in the same direction. They're so excited. They want to make things happen even faster than you want to make them happen. And, you know, it builds on itself. Um, and that's what we're seeing now with a, a great team. We've really grown quite quickly. We've hired four new leaders, um, so that Stephen and I have the have people who have the depth in each of the areas to rather than him and me trying to do a lot of that or lead uh, you know workers within those areas ourselves. So that's been really uh, uh, a growth growth area for us um, and like is leading to growth in the business. Mm-hmm. Leadership 101. I understand faith while you're the people person. Mm. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Yep. That was the lesson. You're right. It was leadership 101. It's time for a short announcement. Over the years, I've learned three critical things about entrepreneurship. One, being an entrepreneur is a calling. Two, entrepreneurship is a mindset. And three, the biggest risk you face as an entrepreneur is becoming the bottleneck in your business. When you're the bottleneck, you're stuck. And when you're stuck, your business is stuck. So if it happens, you need to A, work on your mindset and make sure it's back into the right place. And B, implement specific tactics to get unstuck. In my new ebook, I share eight of those tactics which will help you unlock situations and strive as an entrepreneur. Watch out, it's not just another ebook. It's based on hundreds of conversations with entrepreneurs, on my podcast with my clients and peers. It contains 8,055 words over 38 pages. Each tactic comes with a set of practical tips or exercises so you can immediately apply the tactic into your business. Grab your copy of my free ebook, Eight Tactics to Strive as an Entrepreneur, on my website. You will find the link in the show notes. And now let's go back to the episode. I could just add just a little bit to what Faith was saying. One of the other things that I hear over and over again from our employees, um, whether they're managers, it's a, you know, chief operating officer, or whether it's a part-time employee that just joined us, but consistently once they come in and understand that, you know, this, what EOS is and how we use it and that it's not just some sort of fake language that we Mm -hmm. use to then punish people, but it's also much more actually about setting expectations so that when people achieve those goals, that they're that they're rewarded, and that that the whole thing is set up so that you mostly do achieve your goals. It's not about punishing. Um, it can be about. I mean, you can certainly get into a situation where somebody is, you know, disciplined or, um, you know, told, you know, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done this, or you know, you get those situations. Of course, we're all yeah. human. We all make mistakes. Um, but it's much more about people understanding what they can be doing and what they should be doing. So I, we work with a lot of different organizations, customers, vendors, partners, and it amazes me at how many of those other organizations that are somewhat similar to ours, you know, a couple dozen employees type of thing, where it's like they can't do anything without it being a whole discussion. You know, you don't need eight people deciding if you can go to the bathroom. You should be able to make that decision on your own. You shouldn't need to get your manager's approval to get a paperclip out of the cabinet. You should be able to make that decision on your own. But we work with some organizations where I swear it's like they can't, nobody can make any decision by themselves. 
And as a result, it takes forever to make decisions, all to get everybody to affirmatively say yes to anything that matters is excruciating. And so they move at the speed of molasses. When we just had our, our uh, quarterly meeting and we were looking back at what did we accomplish over the last quarter, I think when Faith read through the list, her eyes became so big, I was afraid they were going to fall out of her head. <laughs> it was just like, okay, I know we did a lot, but holy cow, did we get a lot accomplished. We could not have done that if every single person didn't understand this is what you're supposed to do and you have full authority to do it. No, you don't have to go to your manager every 12 minutes to seek authority. You want to go to your manager to seek advice mm -hmm. or to say, hey, I uncovered this problem. What should we do about that? Fantastic. But if it's in your lane, you go for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand that. But does it also mean that you also rely on clear processes? Yes. Yes. And 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 very Faith, much if, so. And, and Faith, if he wants to talk about, I was going to say, if he, <laughs> if he wants to talk about about process, which one of the two of us do you think is better suited to talk about that? Yeah, exactly. Um. I yes we we do rely on process yeah. and we're we're at a point now where we're trying to automate some more of our processes mm -hmm. because some of them are are you know very manual um from here this person tells this person to do something and maybe we can automate that that kind of thing but um one of the things that I've been able to do with Stephen over the years is he 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 truly has an entrepreneurial mind where in every aspect of the business um he can think of like 10 great new things or 20 great new things and we you know when he was joking about like yes this is priority number 48 you know mm. now how do i shift around my priorities and so from early on we started with um hey steven you know can you like can we vet out those 10 and come up with maybe three that we throw <laughs> at the wall and see if they stick? Um, and so, you know, when you think about process, that's, that's where it began because we hadn't, we did not have process really when we had um, Stephen leading the company, we tried and there was some, but it was very difficult for him when, you know, I wasn't working in the business yeah. to, to get people to, to follow process and, and for him to follow process, same way, same, same way each time kind of thing. So mm -hmm. we've, you know, we've evolved to a place where our products are much more standard. We can still deviate or have creative solutions with certain partners, but we vet them out throughout the organization. How does that impact ops? How does that impact marketing? How might that impact finance, um, you know, uh, and invoicing and billing? And and mm -hmm. are we complicating things that shouldn't be complicated? Is it worth the business? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's getting that whole, your whole um, business from customer reach out to getting paid or paying people has to be looked at as a full process whenever you try to create something new. And I think we're much better at doing that. Um, and EOS helps too, because we quickly bring issues to the table once a week in what they call a, a level 10 meeting, mm -hmm. where you you literally just check in with each other that you are moving towards your rocks for the quarter. We call them rocks, goals for the quarter. And then <clears throat> quickly get on to, did you do what you said you'd do last week? Uh, and then- that takes all of maybe 20, 25 minutes. And then you've got an hour to discuss issues that are tactical, that are getting in the way. Um, and that's where we can discuss, hey, by you doing that, you know, this is going to happen in ops. We can't have this happen. Or now we've got to deal with it. What do we do? This podcast is about uh, entrepreneurship. And I want to talk about you as the entrepreneurs. What, what does it mean for you to be entrepreneurs today? Yeah, I can, I can start because, you know, I, I think I'm an entrepreneur by nature, but I didn't mm. know that 
when I was, um, you know, in my early career. Um, I had a father who was an entrepreneur in the sense that he was self-employed. He had his own business. Mm -hmm. I had uh, parents who told me, kind of don't do that because <laughs> it's so much riskier. Like, I want you to get an education where you have a degree that you can hang up a shingle if you need to, uh, you know, um, and, and, but then being an entrepreneur is that too. So it's really interesting that it kind of came full circle. I think for me, one of the things about entrepreneurship is you can make things happen. Mm -hmm. And that is one of my mantras um, for the business. And for me is make it happen. Um, and I really like that. Cause I've always said that even in life, life, there are people who say life happens to you. And there are people who say you make life happen. Um, and it's, that's a philosophy, right. In general, in life, like take responsibility and ownership, but then also that means you get to make it happen. So mm -hmm. there's, there's that. And then, um, the other thing for me is, is the flexibility that allows me, uh, to be my own boss to, you know, I can work 80 hours a week if I want to. I can also take two hours during the day to go do something very personal for myself, whether mm -hmm. it's exercise or being with my mom or, you know, whatever. And the, the flexibility that it provides um, is, a, is part of it that I really like. Mm -hmm. It is riskier. And I mean, any advice I would give to someone is you need to realize you can't be 100% risk adverse and start a company or run a company because there are, no matter how much you feel that you can, that you're smart and you can control certain things, there are always things very out of your control that hit the business that, that can hit hard, Yeah, you know, can hit big and that's a risk. Mm, it's always indeed. a risk. So, Stephen, do you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. So, like Faith was saying about her dad being an entrepreneur, uh, I also had some role models in my family, and mm. I do think that makes it a lot easier. So, my my dad uh, was an entrepreneur, and his father before him. So, when I was growing up, it just wasn't at all unusual to have the idea of you know owning your own business, starting your own thing. Um, have pivoting, morphing, call it what you want, you know, adapting to changing circumstances around you. That was just, that was dinner table talk. So it really wasn't anything out of the ordinary for me. And it, so it wasn't at all scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, my grandfather and my dad um, both did pretty decently in their businesses. So I think I came into the idea of being an entrepreneur without as much fear as somebody who might have had an entrepreneur in the family who had uh, blown their family savings, you know, or just, you know, had a terrible, terrible experience. And then they see much more up close and realistic or uh, what, what the downsides uh, of being an entrepreneur. When, when I think of being like why I wanted to be an entrepreneur rather than being in a job where somebody would sort of be continually telling me what to do. It's, I do like the creation part. I think some entrepreneurs are really, really good at coming up with ideas and really, really bad at executing. Those tend to be entrepreneurs that unless they're surrounded by people who are really good at executing, they tend to fail we might call them dreamers, right? Mm. Dreams are great. But if you don't have a way of putting those dreams into reality, then they're just dreams. So I do have the ability to execute. What happens to me is similar to, I think, what happens to a lot of other entrepreneurs. And that is when you come up with the idea, maybe call it a dream and you implement it, call that execution and things are running reasonably well, we very quickly lose interest. And it's mm. not that we don't care about it anymore. It's that there's something more interesting around the next corner and it distracts us. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, hear, you hear people talking about like, you know, walking your dog and squirrel, 
And, you know, you can be <laughs> having a great walk and your dog is doing great and everything's fine. And they see a squirrel and it's all the training goes out the window. Yeah. Well, welcome to life as an entrepreneur. Yeah, and, totally uh, and for those, <laughs> uh, and so there's a lot of, you know, I think that there's probably an extremely high correlation, probably causation between ADHD and entrepreneurship. Um, I don't know too many entrepreneurs who are not, um, who don't have attention deficit disorder. Um, <laughs> but I do know people who have ADD who are not entrepreneurs. So I, I think that there's, I don't think it necessarily means you're going to be an entrepreneur or that an, if you are one that, that you're going to have ADD, but, but I do think there's, there's some real benefits to that. One of the things that, that uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs share, and I remember Faith and I had this conversation probably like 10, 15 years ago, and it was a, it was an epiphany for her and sort of how my mind works mm. is that a lot of people who could who will say I could never be an entrepreneur will see the world as uh where pro where they see problems facing them in the world as a big brick wall they mm. cannot get around it there's a big problem ahead of them and they just it's insurmountable they can't yeah. go over it they can't go around it they can't go under it and they get stuck I think entrepreneurs see problems more as um, what some people might call pylons, other people might call traffic cones. And there are things that you go around. And it's like, yeah, that's in your way, but you can go left or you can go right, or you might even be able to jump over it. Mm. Or what I do sometimes and what other entrepreneurs do sometimes is just kick the damn pylon out of the way. And you yeah. just sort of bulldoze through it. And um, I'm not saying you should do that most of the time, but sometimes... Sometimes you just have to say, hey, there's a problem in front of me and I'm just going to plow right through it. And yeah. most of the time you can deviate a little to the left or deviate a little to the right and just get around the problem. And now you're back on course. What, what have you guys um, learned about yourselves since you became entrepreneurs? I think, you know, I think one of the biggest things that um, that I learned about myself is well it's kind of twofold right because we've also learned together mm -hmm. because we do have that life partnership too but what i would say the biggest thing for me that is in has been in both my personal life and my entrepreneurial work life is to manage anxiety so mm -hmm. i have learned over the years you know some of the stereotypical stuff what i need to do to be healthy um that Lots of other people would say, you know, you hear you should exercise, you should sleep well, you should eat right, those things. But I've also learned um, sort of how to manage my emotions at times when things are difficult, whether it's distracting myself uh, from those things for a while yeah. because I'm not in a good headspace to deal with them yeah. or or whether it's, you know, facing them head on and saying, I'm going to write down the pros and cons of this decision I have to make that both both choices are bad, but one's, you know, going to be less bad than the other. And how do I, you know, like get through that uh, without having it just swirl all around in my head and make me more anxious? I can like write it down. Here's the pros to this one. Here's the pros to the other one. And, you know, kind of work it through in more of a work fashion. So I've learned a lot about about that. And that transcends across everything for me because it, it's made me a better leader uh, in the business. I I think I've always had the ability to em empathize, but what my problem always was, was I empathized too much. Mm. Uh, if that makes sense and at work, you can see it. It's like, how do you fire someone when you're thinking yeah. about what it's going to feel like to them? Right. Um, and so I've really grown in those ways from being you know, being able to say, I'm still a nice person and I want to do what's right for everyone in the company. Therefore, this person is in the wrong seat. It's not their fault. It's probably just as much my fault. Somehow they're in the wrong seat or their life circumstances have changed and it's become the wrong seat for them. Mm -hmm. And they need to move on and we need to move on. And that's going to be better for both of us. So, I mean, that's like a really good example of how mm -hmm. I've I've managed th through, you know, we all have certain temperaments, right? And um, 
And that's, that's the way I've kind of managed through it for me. I think, I think from my perspective, probably the biggest revelation that I had fairly early on was that I didn't appreciate how unusual, um, one of my attributes is. And to me, it's just kind of like, it was just, I didn't realize that a lot of other people don't share it, but that is, I'm always looking for the win-win. I want to win, but I want you to win also, whether you're a vendor, whether you're a customer, whether you're a partner, um, whether you're a job seeker that comes to our site to, to run a search for a job, life does not have to be a zero sum sport, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, in order for me to win, that does not mean that you need to lose. In fact, if we can figure out a way where I can win and you can win, the likelihood is that we're both going to win bigger. Mm-hmm. So there've been plenty of op- plenty of occasions over the years in our business where we've partnered with competitors. Mm-hmm. And other people will be like, "Why would you be working with them? You're making them stronger." And that's going to hurt you. Yeah, but it's going to benefit us more. So if we can be a lot stronger and our competitor ends up being a lot stronger too, what's the problem with that? And if we can sell something to a customer of ours or occasionally say, no, we're not going to sell this to you because it doesn't create a win for them. But if the if what we sell or sometimes decline to sell to a customer ends up making them stronger, they're going to be more likely to come back to us to buy more. They're going to do it more frequently and they're going to buy larger items. If same thing on the flip side with a vendor, if we treat the vendors well, we get them paid on time, we pay them fairly, you know, all of that kind of stuff that's going to make it much more likely that they're going to want to continue to do business with us Mm -hmm. and probably do business with us under more preferential terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe if we run into a cash flow problem, they'll be more likely to say, you know what, you need a couple extra weeks, no issues. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, we can get this work done for you faster. Um, So, you know, for example, there's, there's a vendor that we've worked with a lot over the years where they bill us on a net 30 basis. And there have been lots of times, not every time, maybe not even most of times, but lots of times we pay them quite early. Mm. And trust me, when the phone rings and it's one of their customers on the other end and it's us, they're going to be a lot more likely to pick up that phone and to bend over backward <laughs> to, to do the work and right. to get it done quickly because it's like, this is a customer that treats us well and we it's in our best interest to do whatever we can to make them as happy as possible. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a boss years ago who was just a master at understanding what different stakeholders wanted and getting them as best as he could what they wanted, even if there was no real benefit for him right then and there. It's like mm-hmm. planting seeds. If you plant the seeds, you know that three months later you're gonna you're gonna be eating well, and and that's what he would do. And I think that's something that I didn't realize was was instinctive to me, but it it really is. And it's 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 a good attribute to have when you're running your own business. Yeah, yeah. You guys shared a lot of uh, valuable lessons. Um, I have to wrap up this uh, conversation. So. If you had to take all your experience into one recommendation, practical recommendation to other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, what would it be? One thing that, that Stephen said that stuck out to me is think about if you if you are an aspiring entrepreneur, make sure you really are wanting to take on that risk, wanting to come up with an idea, but then execute that idea. Because I do think aspiring entrepreneurs, if they haven't tried it, think if I only had a great idea yeah, and somehow mm-hmm. that's all just going to happen. It's a lot of hard work, but it, if you're passionate about what you're doing, then it's also fun. And mm-hmm. that's, I think that's key. Um, it's really key. You need to believe in what you're trying to do. Nice. Steven. 
I'm glad that Faith went first because it gave me an opportunity to <laughs> through some ideas. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <Good call. laughs> so. Right. It's, it's not, it's not always her that gets the upper hand in those sorts of uh, interactions. <laughs> like every once in a while I do too. So um, no, I love what Faith said. I just to give another, a different piece of advice. I think one thing I would say is you are different than your business mm. that you can be a, a good successful person and have a failing business and you can have a good successful business and be a failing person. So you know, at times we'll be asked about um, our business and our relationship to it and whatever. And a typical answer that we give is that we're married to each other, not to the business. And mm -hmm. so the business is really important to us, provides us with our livelihood. Um, certainly it provides us with a lot of our identity and the, the work that an opportunity to, you know, hopefully leave the world a little bit of a better place. But at the end of the day, you know, hopefully when we're very, very old and have had a good life and we die, we're not going to take the business with us. The business is separate from us. And so I think that too many entrepreneurs get their own sense of self-worth and identity completely intertwined with their business. And so if the business has a bad day, so do they. And I think that's somewhat true that it should be, you should take it personally, but it shouldn't be everything. You mm -hmm. can still be a good person and have good personal relationships and have a good life, even if your business is struggling or fails. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I kind of, I agree with you, but differ from you. Because I believe entrepreneurs are a business. It's the same. Because when when an entrepreneur mm. is not having a good day, the business is not having a good day. Mm. When the the entrepreneur is is striving as a as a human being, then the the business is also striving. I agree with you that the business is not the person, but there's a lot of relationships between the the person the mindset and and the business. Yeah. Anyway, just, Absolutely. just saying that. <laughs> that, that, yes I, I would agree i would agree with you i definitely would all yeah. right last question how can people contact you well uh i'm at faith at collegerecruiter.com they can email me mm -hmm. or at uh or on linkedin um how about you steven yeah steven at collegerecruiter.com for email uh, or LinkedIn, I'm at uh, linkedin.com slash IN slash Stephen Rothberg. And happy to connect, share tips, yeah, um, share war stories, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Well, Faith, Stephen, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. This has fun. been fun. Yeah. And uh, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe to my podcast so you don't miss any. See you next time. Bye for now.